Hello, and welcome to the FBC Sermon Podcast. Today is Easter Sunday, and that means we will hear more about the empty tomb from Greg Moselle, our lead pastor. We hope you enjoyed today's sermon. So where were we? (laughs) The Christian faith is so counterintuitive. Empty usually connotates things that are negative, but but the empty tomb is the most glorious truth we could ever imagine. Let's explore why. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, again, page 1139 in the house. For those of you online, we're one church in the house here and uh, located uh, in homes and cafes, uh, um, really all over the world nowadays. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, let's join together in verse 3. What I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. Now, anytime we read in Scripture, what's of first importance? This is what matters most. This is the foundation for us. I want to know what that is. And 1 Corinthians 15, just these few verses, has the most concise summary of the gospel, the most concise summary of who Jesus is and what God's redemptive mission is all about about. And four different times the author, the the Apostle Paul, uses the word that. That Christ died, that Christ was buried, that Christ was raised, and that Christ appeared. Let's explore each of those and see what difference that can make in our everyday lives today. First of all, uh, continue in verse 3, we read, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Christ died, and and we read both for our sins and according to the Scriptures. For our sins. Imagine what it must have been like. Imagine Jesus on the cross. Physically, He's been tortured. He's suffering. Uh, Emotively, He's being jeered by the crowd. But then spiritually, all the sin and filth and violence and guilt and shame of human history is heaped upon him. And so now cosmically, he takes all of our sin and filth and guilt and shame and he takes it upon himself on the cross. And it's all heaped upon Jesus to liberate us from our sin and our shame and our filth and our guilt. But then we also read according to the Scriptures. Let's not move on and miss this little note. See, Jesus wasn't just the wrong guy at the wrong place at the wrong time, this this martyr who tragically got caught. Instead, this has been God's plan through human history. An example of this is there is more than 400 prophecies embedded throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, the First Testament, our Old Testament, that point to Messiah, Jesus. Just a few brief examples. Micah 5 says that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Isaiah chapter 7 says that that there would be this Redeemer who would be born of a virgin. Hebrew scholars spent centuries trying to figure out how in the world could this Redeemer be born of a virgin? How does that happen? That doesn't make sense. In Psalm 22, the psalmist a thousand years before Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Exactly what Jesus cried out, on the cross. We read the psalmist a thousand years before Jesus in Psalm 22. My hands and my feet have been pierced. My bones are out of joint. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. Remember when Jesus was thirsty? And that they cast lots for for my clothing. 
This intimate description of crucifixion was written 700 years before crucifixion even wove its way into human history in uh, what is today Iran and Iraq because Tammuz was the god of the soil. And so people were raised up on a cross to be killed. The Romans found it, incorporated it, and uh, brutally executed so many people. Isaiah 53, there's this suffering servant poem who's lifted up, whose body is disfigured, who's pierced for our sins, who's like a lamb taken away to the slaughter, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who bore our sins. Now, some of us might ask, now, could, could these have retro been put back into the Old Testament after Jesus? But one of the most amazing discoveries of human history happened in the year 47, or I, I'm, I'm sorry, 1947, when Muhammad Abdib, who was a, a Bedouin shepherd, wandered into a cave looking for his lost goat, and he found the first in, in clay pots of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Here's what this means. We have every book of the Old Testament except one, Ruth, that is, that is preserved from about 200 years before Jesus. This couldn't have been written back in. No one could have manufactured all these details, 400 prophecies plus. In other words, this was all the plan of God. That according to the script, according to God's plan, Jesus would be sacrificed because you and I need a Savior. You and I recognize that there's shame and filth and brokenness and woundedness and depravity lurking within us. And Jesus takes that upon himself on the cross to liberate us from all of that. So the second of the that's that, that, that really shares concisely this mission of Jesus and what difference it makes today. Move to verse 4. That he was buried. Now this might be kind of obvious. Duh, Greg. Jesus died. He was buried. But think about this. Jesus died. God in the flesh was crucified and died. That's revolutionary. See, we might hear that over and over. Oh, yeah, yeah, Jesus died. But what other deity in human history, what other God in human history has ever visited his people, not to plunder, not to demand tribute, but to serve his people and sacrifice his life to rescue his wayward people? Christ died for our sins. It's, it's as if our sins were, there's this portrait, buried with Jesus. But they never rose again. Although Jesus did. Isn't it easy for us to keep kind of raising those sins back up and keep condemning ourselves and, and defining ourselves by our past instead of our new identity of who Jesus says we are, his beloved children called to be his hands and feet and voice of hope in a wounded, fractured, broken world. That's why in baptism, a person is lowered into the water. That's a sign that, that, that a person's old life is being washed away, that a person's sins are being washed away, that Christ died, and, and when they're raised, it's a sign, it, it's a celebration. We've been raised, cleansed, and purified to new life, and that Christ was raised from the dead. Now, Tuesday is tax day. I'm sorry to ruin worship for you, okay? And uh, if some of you haven't gotten started yet, the nice thing about the state of Mass is tomorrow is Patriot's Day. That means we get an extra day, okay? They're due on, on Tuesday. I remember uh, a tax season years and years and years ago. Uh, 
I was in seminary and on staff at a church, and Carolyn was an elementary school teacher and, and in graduate school, and um, we were really living on the cheap, okay? And my father was an accountant, so we would always ship everything off to him, and, and he called me up, and he said, well, Greg, I don't have the best news this year. He said, Greg, you owe $823. I'll never forget the number, $823. Well, we didn't have anything near $823. And this was the days before credit cards where we could have just swiped, right? So we're like, ooh, this isn't good. And I was just kind of thinking like some IRS SWAT team is going to come to my house, you know, and they're going to begin taking things. I mean, it was, it was really anxiety-ridden. Finally, my taxes came in, in the mail from my father, and I um, actually waited a little while to open them. You know how we sometimes kind of try to avoid reality. I had this debt I could never pay. When I opened my taxes... What began to fall out was a check for my father. My father wrote a check to the IRS for $823. He wrote a check for a debt that I could never pay. That's what our Heavenly Father did through Jesus. He came in Christ to pay this debt of sin and filth and guilt that we have against each other and against our holy, pure, perfect God. And he paid the price on the cross. But you see, the cost for Jesus was far more than $823. The cost for Heavenly Father was releasing over His only begotten Son. The cost for Christ was the pain and the agony and the abuse and the shame of the cross. Take the abuse from Satan and the shame of our lives upon Himself to liberate us to be God's beloved, treasured children. So that Christ died, that Christ was raised, and now continue in verse 4 to the next, that He was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures. Why does this matter that Jesus was raised? So what the resurrection? What, what could this mean for us 2,000 years later? Well, first of all, it means Jesus is alive right now with us to guide us and lead us and help us navigate through this life. Do you remember in uh, Matthew 28, uh, the Great Commission, Jesus said, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Through the Spirit, Jesus is alive. And that means you are never alone. The night that you lay in bed and you're in anguish, and you feel, ah, I just feel totally alone. It's like Jesus, I, I remember when my father was dying, and we'd talk on the phone, and I'd pray with him, and I'd say, Jesus, would you give dad a sense he's just that, that you've climbed in the bed with him and you're holding him close? That's the Jesus who's alive and with us to guide and lead and navigate and heal and challenge us to become all that God has created us to be. It means Jesus is alive to be our advocate. In, in 1 John chapter 2, we read, if we do sin... Uh, we have an advocate, Jesus, before the Father. Now imagine the scene, right? Here's the throne room of God, and, and Satan comes accusing. And Satan says, that, that Greg Moselle, or put your name there, okay? And he says, Greg Moselle, here, here, here's some of the motives of his heart. Here, here's some of the appetites of his will. Here's some things he said, some things he's done. I, man, I got him this time to, to the Heavenly Father. And our Heavenly Father says, you're right, that's true, he's fallen, he's depraved, he's damaged, he's warped. But then Jesus steps in, and the scars are there. 
Did you know that when you and I are raised someday at the end of our lives or when Jesus comes back, we'll be raised with perfect bodies? Isn't that a cool thought? I'm looking forward to having this thing kind of renovated, okay? Right? Perfect body. But not Jesus. He still has the scars. I think the reason for that is it's, it's like a receipt <laughs> that says, look, remember, remember the cost of your redemption, of your rescue, of your eternal life. And it's like Jesus says to the Father, no, 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 I paid for all that sin and filth and guilt. So Satan, why don't you just go away? Why don't you leave? Because that's one of our beloved children who in Christ is completely forgiven and is called to be our kids. The third thing that's so powerful that Jesus was raised on the third day is that it means that we can have the hope of an inheritance of eternal life. In John chapter 14, Jesus says, I prepare a place for you and I'll come back to take you to be with me. Isn't that a cool part? Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you in eternity where there's no more death or war, crying or mourning or weeping or cancer or leukemia or pain, but instead the original creation that God designed in our fallen world will be restored. It's the restoration of God's original perfect design. Now, how does that affect us today? Just imagine with me that there's two people and they both have the same job. It's, it's a job that's pretty menial, uh, task that they're like, yeah, you know, really, really rather not do, but it's a job, right? And so one person is promised at the end of a year, you'll be paid $30,000. Another person, same menial job, same task, same showing up every day, is said at the end of a year, you'll receive $30 million. Will there be a difference between how, how they do their job? I think so. Because one of them in the midst someday of doing those menial tasks is going to be like, I hate doing this. The other one, the same menial task, is going to say, man, this is a pathway to a future beyond what I could have imagined. That's the resurrection. Because the same everyday, sometimes menial feeling of, of life, but we have coming far greater than $30 million. We know that Jesus is with us in the Spirit to guide us, that we have purpose to be Christ's ambassadors in a broken world that needs peace and justice and salvation and healing and hope. And then, and then we know someday God has an inheritance for us that's, that's more than 30 trillion, more than, it's inestimable, the value. That transforms how we live today, doesn't it? When we know the promise of the future. That Christ died, that Christ was buried, that Christ was raised, but now here's further proof and also some real takeaway value for us. Move to verse 5, and that he appeared. But notice who he appears to. Cephas, remember you had a, a quadrilingual culture in Israel, all right? You know, because, of the, because Israel often served kind of like a colony, you had Hebrew, which was the historic language, Aramaic, the commercial language, Greek, which was kind of the, the international communication language, and then Latin, which was the government language. And so many people had multiple names. So Cephas here is Peter. So first he appeared to Peter, continue in verse 5, then to the 12, verse 6, and to more than 500 of brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are, are still living, 
but some not. So Jesus appeared to widening circles of people. Here's what this means to us. First of all, why is Peter singled out? First, he appears to Cephas, to Peter. Remember what happened to Peter? Peter had the courage to kind of follow Jesus after everyone had abandoned Jesus. Remember, God allowed himself to have his hands tied behind his back to be arrested by his creatures. And all of his apostles fled. He was all alone. Jesus knows what it is. Every emotion, every struggle, everything we wrestle with, God knows through Jesus, not just intellectually, but experientially. And so <clears throat> Peter then at least ha has the courage from like the courtyard to watch what's happening to Jesus as, as, as he's being tortured. But then three times he says, I, I don't even know this guy. And because of that, he runs away. He weeps bitterly. He feels like a failure. He feels shame. He feels hopeless. Don't we sometimes feel like that? Here's the good news. When Jesus was raised, he appeared to Peter. It's like Jesus sought out the one who felt ashamed, who had failed. That's God's grace. I think Jesus is still appearing in our lives at, at kind of the, the different uh, intersections of our lives, especially when we're the most desperate, hurting, wounded, Jesus says, or, or we're ashamed. It's like, no, no, by my grace, I'm here. Actually, I'm pursuing you. I'm the good shepherd who's pursuing you. He just sent a text message. Isn't that awesome? All right. So next then, after Peter, is the 12. Now remember what the apostles were doing when Jesus appeared to them? They were hiding in fear behind locked doors. And then Jesus appeared to them right in the midst of their fear and their doubt. Sometimes we can lock the doors of our heart, can't we? Sometimes we can be hiding from realities of our lives. And Jesus steps in and he says, I'm here. I'm here with you. The difference of the resurrection. And then finally to, to these 500 people at the same time. Now, Jesus probably appeared to thousands of people because this doesn't say an aggregate of 500 people. This is one episode where Jesus appeared to 500 people at the same time. I wonder how many people Jesus totally appeared to in those 40 days before he ascended to heaven. But here's what's fascinating. The author says, and many of them, most of them are still living. This is ancient historiography. It's like a way to footnote. Say, if you need to look this up, they're still living. Go ask them. Go fact check this with the people who saw Jesus. He's writing in the same generation of people who are alive, who saw the risen Savior. If you're creating mythology... You don't do something like this. When we talk about historical fact, reality, say, hey, there's, there's people out there who, who, who are alive. Go ask them if this is what they saw. So what difference does all this make? Um, in 1994, um, I had really a privilege uh, of teaching at the International Leadership Academy in the former Soviet Union. So I taught in Minsk, Belarus, down in Mogilev and in Moscow. Um, I taught uh, pastors and emerging pastors, some theologians, some professors, uh, biblical interpretation. I learned more from them than they ever learned from me. It was a beautiful exchange, great experience. And toward the end of this semester, I was in Moscow uh, with my interpreter, who, who was assigned from, from the government. So I, I wonder 
if they have a file or something like that. I don't know. But anyway, an interpreter from, from the, and, and he was interpreting for me, and we were standing in Red Square. And so here's St. Basil's Cathedral, the Goom, which is a shopping center behind us. And here's Lenin's mausoleum. My whole life growing up, I had seen, you know, you know, the May Day parade. Matter of fact, I was there over Easter. It was amazing. And, and I remember growing up, all of the tanks and the missiles would go by, and all the leaders, most of them aged, remember, like Konstantin Chernenko or whatever, and they'd kind of stand on the mausoleum. And then he said, hey, would you like to go see Lenin's tomb? And, and we just walked right into Lenin's tomb. He said, this is amazing. I said, why is that? He said, because before the fall of communism, he said, we were waited two or three hours. The line went down around the corner. It was like, it was a sign of your, like, commitment. I mean, you, and he said, now there's nobody here. Nobody cares. We just walked right in. And I remember there over Easter thinking, what a difference. For 73 years, matter of fact, many of the people who we, who, who I ate, ate meals with and taught and we had lunches together, talked about the anguish that their parents and grandparents had, had really sacrificed so much, the great patriotic, so much of their life for this dream, and then it was shattered, 73 years. I thought, wow, that's when we put our hope in this world. Things are here today and they're gone tomorrow, aren't they? And nobody seemed to care anymore. And I thought, wow, how different from the empty tomb. See, if the tomb was full, there'd be people waiting for miles to see Jesus. But, but Jesus isn't a rotting body. He's, he's risen. And that means when we put our hope in, in Jesus, even though life may have challenges and unanswered questions, we know that God's promises are based on God's character. God's character never changes. God is eternal. The only promises we can really count on in this world and for eternity are God's promises. And it's like the receipt for that is that Jesus has risen from the dead. I don't know what we're pouring our greatest hopes and dreams on to feel loved or validated or, or to have hope. But our God is a God who's eternal, the lover of our soul, and He sacrificed His life because He loves you too much to spend eternity without you. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you are interested in learning more about what we do here at FBC, please visit our website, fbcamers.org. Also, consider subscribing to this podcast so you can get a notification when our weekly sermons are posted. Again, thank you for listening to this podcast. Have a great day.